let's jump right into it. Welcome to our um, episode on Jesus. My name is Christian Watkins, and I'm here with Jim, and we are um, the podcast. I've never thought of it that way before. We are so excited to explore the history behind Jesus and maybe why asking that question isn't such a silly question, as well as share a little bit about some political perspectives that might be held around Jesus, particularly in the United States, as well as talk about our own, where we derive our inspiration from Jesus as uh, people of faith in the Christian tradition and as leaders as well. So with that, let's, let's dive right in. Um, why would we need to talk about Jesus? Isn't that a silly question? And the answer to that is there, this is not a silly question at all, because there are really several ways to approach Jesus in the Christian traditions. And, uh, there's no better place to start than in the Bible. Um, I think that for me, um, one of the places where I see a lot of difference or where I see different interpretations of who Jesus, um, might be in terms of the Christian tradition is in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or in the order that they were written, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And, um, in, if you think about the, the Bible, or if you think about particularly the gospels as being a harmonized book where all of those where those three books in particular, oftentimes John is included when we talk about the gospels, but when we say synoptic gospels, that's a little bit different that those are just Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Um, People often try and harmonize those and say, well, we're just all telling the same stories of Jesus and they are all inherently true. And that is um, certainly a way to approach Jesus. But um, one way that um, I have found helpful is to actually read Mark on Mark's own terms and not try and think about Matthew, not try and think about Luke, but just read who Jesus is depicted as in the book of Mark, and then to do the same with Matthew as well as Luke. So looking at those texts individually rather than trying to say that they're all the same and that there's um, that they're just looking at different perspectives, looking at them as their own te- standalone text. And so when you do that, I think, um, again, I'm going to start with Mark, who is the the first text um that is was written we see that jesus has a different personality and has different interests than the jesus in matthew um jesus in mark is often um i think seen as sort of i would refer to him as like an angry jesus or someone who has um who's a little more short um and he's often described as having like a secret that he doesn't want other people to know about him um, what do you think about Jesus in, in Mark in particular, or how would you nuance that, Jim? Well, I think you uh, mentioned two critical pieces. One is the so-called messianic secret. Um, Jesus cures, heals, does miraculous sorts of things, but often cautions or explicitly instructs the people, don't say anything, don't mention it to anybody. And of course they do anyway. Um, up until the point of, Matt, of Mark 8, where Mark asked the disciples, who do you think that I am? Uh, and they answer that Peter answers, he is the, the Messiah. And Jesus tells them not to say anything to anybody. So that's always been kind of a, an interesting question for scholars to deal with. And the other thing about Mark that's important, if you're distinguishing it from Matthew and Luke, is there's no infancy narrative in Mark. Um, John the Baptist is the first character that shows up and he does his thing and he's baptizing. And then just Jesus shows up uh, as this dude and uh, gets baptized. And then the spirit descends on him and drives him into the wilderness and he's tempted and he's off from there. So in one of our podcast episodes, when we talked about heresy, we talked about the uh, Trinitarian heresy of adoptionism, but Mark is a source for that way of thinking because there's no indication that Jesus was anything other than just a a Jew hanging out by the river Jordan. And for some reason he as opposed to anyone else who was baptized in the Jordan that day um, is visited upon by the spirit and is adopted. Some would say by God to be his son and to do proclaim the kingdom of God. Um, So Mark is about the kingdom of God it is a and, and the other thing about Mark, and this isn't maybe Jesus so much, but um, the disciples are basically idiots in truly, Mark. Mm-hmm. and but there are people who get it, but the people who get it 
are the no-named, literally, they don't have names, uh, characters who interact with Jesus and understand what he's about. And the disciples fail to grasp the whole thing while they're marching along. So, yeah, that's a, then that's just a Jesus who has been chosen by God to be the forerunner of the kingdom and announces it, embodies it, teaches about it. Um, and the other sort of mysterious thing about Mark is at the end, Jesus um, is crucified. And on the third day, the women go to the tomb and there's a young man there, not an angel, but a young man, and says that Jesus is risen. He's gone ahead of them to Galilee, but they say nothing to anyone for they are afraid. The end. That's the end. Curtain yeah. close. Yeah. And there are some verses after that, but they're added later and have nothing to do with the original gospel itself. So, yeah, that's that's one Jesus. I think that, again, folks that are listening may not have heard or uh, heard someone just talk about Jesus as from each book. And so um, know that that's uh, an interesting way, I think, to read and approach the Gospels, but also um, helps us see and understand Jesus from the perspective of these writers. Um, what we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls and from studying sort of the community, uh, the a Christian community as it's a part of the late Jewish tradition and then sort of becomes its own, is forming into its own theological space and having their own um, ideas that are a little bit more distinct from the Jewish community. There's a lot of interest and in research in that sort of transition period. And we find in by studying these books individually and thinking about Jesus as he's written about in these books, um, that some people would follow like Mark, the book of Mark, they were interested in um, what Mark was writing about, and weren't as interested in Matthew and weren't as interested in Luke. And that was because at the time, you know, the, these books were not canonized. There wasn't like a canon that said you have to read the Bible in this certain way. So the Bible um, has, of course, a period of a long period of transition in history where um, folks are interested in different aspects of who Jesus is as a leader. And Matthew, which is the next book that we'll talk about as who Jesus was in Matthew, is the most popular text written during the Dead Sea Scrolls. I believe um, they found over 25 different written copies of Matthew in what would have been like a graveyard area. They actually would bury their texts, this community in Qumran, um, and have sacred burials for them. And they found several documents when digging up the caves of Matthew. And so Matthew was really of interest to this transition, this community in transition. And um, when thinking about Jesus, the Jesus in Matthew it talks constantly. I think of him as a chatterbox. He always is. Um, that's where we get a lot of his long sermons or the long stories that he's telling. Whenever you're thinking of a long story that Jesus is telling in particular, it probably comes from Matthew because the man is just talking nonstop in the book. And it's to go back to Mark just for a second. Um, the vibe that Jesus mm. gives off in Mark from a, from a Hebrew scripture perspective is reminds one of Elijah. And a lot of the things he does are things that can be compared to Elijah in Matthew. If you're, we're talking, cause we're talking about different kinds of Jesus. Right. Um, with, uh, Herod, cause this is, Matthew alone tells the story of Herod and the wise men and the slaughter of the innocents. And so Herod is standing for Pharaoh and Jesus is ushered off to uh, Egypt to avoid Herod's mandate of killing the children, which is what Pharaoh and Moses was saved from that. Um, Jesus goes up a mountain and gives an anti, sort of a anti-mosaic speech. So in Matthew, it seems that Jesus is evoking kind of a new Moses. Um, and uh, with the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, you have heard it said, insert Moses, but I say, insert new Moses. Um, so um, that's a different kind of Jesus sure. that Matthew is trying to put into the mind of his largely Jewish audience. That's right. So that it's maybe subtle, but it's why we can't just say, well, Jesus is Jesus. Right. There are. That's right. It depends on who's um, right, telling the story and writing the text. Yeah. And what they have is their background. What, you know, what's their, 
I hate to use the this sounds so big, but you know the meta text. In other words, what's what's the overarching narrative that their audience is already familiar with, that they're using as a keystone for understanding the new character that's being introduced. Sure, and and Jesus. I think that's a good it's a good point because it makes sense why that particular text would be so popular and be written by scribes and there would be so many copies of it distributed because it feels like a story that is very dear to the community that is now in a desert and has been wandering. And so Matthew is really provides like an anchoring, another anchoring point that feels familiar. And if Moses is my man, you're going to have to do something that's going to get me to say, Oh, okay. So Jesus is the new guy. Yeah. I mean, because I'm not going to let go of Moses that easily unless you show me how that relationship is, the baton is being passed, as it were. Right. And I, I do to name sort of like dates. Um, these books were not written Matthew, Mark, Mark, Matthew, or Luke were, were not written by Jesus at the time Jesus was alive. We're looking at um, 25, 50, 75, 150 some years. Each of those books, Mark was written the soonest to his um, death. Matthew written, uh, I think 50, 70 year mark. And then Luke was written later around, I think it's 100, 150 years. Although please do not quote me on that. Um, um, after Jesus has, has died. And so we're thinking about um, a community that's remembering a community that's not just like having a memory of someone in the past, but literally remembering Jesus into their community and trying to understand his relationship to their, um, to the leaders of Moses or to Elijah. So um, there's a lot happening when these books are being written and it's not just coming out of Jesus's mouth. And that's, I think, important author and community and, um, audience are really important when we talk about Jesus, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, although maybe we should just make that claim for all of the things we're going to say about him. And then we have Luke. And um, Luke is, I feel like oftentimes, at least in, for me, I, I like Jesus and Luke because he sort of is the Jesus that's recognizing, at least in my interpretation, communities that aren't often named. So you see Jesus with children, um, you see Jesus talking about women um, and how they have value in a community, in a space where that often um, they're often looked down on or not named at all. I mean, they're just totally silent. So we so Luke, I feel like while there are often while that isn't the only through line of Jesus and Luke, um, there are moments where that I feel that resonate really with me, particularly in of, uh, in of his story and legacy in that book. And Luke is the first volume of uh, two volumes. And this is some manner of debate, I suppose, in scholarly circles. Is Acts a sequel? Mm. Or is the intent of Luke to write one story in two volumes? I'm of the school that says it's one story in two volumes. So you really, to understand Luke well, you need to also ha always have in mind the long view of Acts um, as well. Luke gives us some of the most treasured stories which transcend religious circles. Um, Luke tells us about the Good Samaritan, right. which is about as common a phrase in culture as you can get. Luke tells us about the prodigal son, which is maybe not quite as much as the Good Samaritan, but if you stop people on the street and you say prodigal son, a lot of them are going to have a sense of what that means. Um, and of course, Luke gives us the most cherished thing in scripture, the nativity story of, uh, of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the manger and the shepherds um, and all that. What Luke also gives us, though, is something that people don't pay any attention to, which is really too bad, because the first, second chapter of Luke is the uh, in those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus bit, which we all know. But the first chapter is the story of John the Baptist's conception and birth, which is definitely unique uh, in the Gospels. And his father, Zechariah, and his mother, Elizabeth, who was kin to Mary. And Elizabeth is barren, um, but an angel of the Lord tells Zechariah that she will give birth. And much like Abraham and Sarah, they're old and this doesn't make any sense. But she manages, so, but then so John is conceived and, and born. 
Uh, and then Mary is a virgin and she conceives. Um, so you've got the contrast between the barren and the virgin, uh, which I sort of think Luke is trying to suggest that there is Mary or Elizabeth and Zechariah are representative of what, for lack of a better phrase, the Old Testament, the history of Israel up to that point, which is it barren? Is it empty? Is it no longer able to bring something new forth? And the answer is no. It is able to bring forth the one who will make the way for. And then Mary, by being a virgin, indicates that Jesus is brand new. That's interesting. Um, and so when we don't bother with the first chapter of Luke, I'm not sure we fully appreciate what's going on in the second chapter and what it means, um, I would say, don't at me, um, metaphorically what it means that Mary is a virgin. Um, and so, yeah, Luke is a, is beloved for all of those stories. And he's the best storyteller. It's, I mean, he's the best writer. Clearly. I think one of the things that I have always found interesting, at least when talking about the historical Jesus, I like your, I love your background in literary, the literary world. I think you bring, I just really enjoy hearing your thoughts on things. But um, one of the things that I found interesting, again, um, studying the historical perspective, is that um, there is a sense or belief um, that that John the Baptist was, there was a, people were following John the Baptist as sort of the um, the coming of the, the second coming of, the, of a Messiah. And so there is um, this sense that Luke is writing to that audience and saying, no, it's you really need to be thinking about Jesus this way, not John the Baptist, so that there's this internal dialogue that um, he's speaking to. Um, and that is often, again, sort of like the question that so many of these, the audiences of these texts have is, what? why is Jesus relevant to us? Why does Jesus matter? Um, and so these authors are writing to convince their uh, readership of Jesus's merit, the reason that Jesus has value and should continue to be um, thought of and um, followed. And so I have found um, I find I find that really interesting to to know and recognize again before this book is canonized that there is an internal dialogue already happening in what would go on to become the canon of the Bible and that so oftentimes again where I started if you just try and harmonize those texts you don't get to see the multiplicity of voices the audiences that they're writing to the nuances of what what where there's value in thinking about Jesus in this way that we're describing and it's been really powerful for my own formation and thinking about how the what the bible means as a historical text but also as a document of faith and that I don't know I I wanted to make sure we talked about that what about this Jesus and John um maybe we can touch on that briefly what are your thoughts on that Jim well the Jesus and John we talked on another podcast episode about gnosticism and if there's something in the Bible that could be accused of being Gnostic, it would be the Gospel of John. Um, because what John contributes to Christian lore is his 18-verse uh, hymn-like introduction. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and then later, and the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us full of grace and truth. The sense, and that's was actually a very important text to early Gnostics because to them it seemed to indicate that the essence of Jesus um, is not flesh because it's the word, the logos in Greek, which um, it means more than just spoken word. Um, but Jesus is the logos and the logos became flesh. And they used that as evidence that the flesh was just incidental, but the logos is what matters. Um, so... Uh, Jesus in John is, is a lot different because the Jesus in John is confident, uh, purpose-driven. Um, he knows his glory. He knows his hour. Um, the, the crucifixion and the cross for Jesus in John is his moment of glory. It's his glorification. It's when he will be lifted up. It's, uh, these are positive things which is, again, another way the Gnostics use the text because Jesus knew that his death didn't mean anything because, you know. But 
One of the great moments for talking to each other in the gospel, in John's gospel, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that he is arrested, um, or at least somewhere in there, Jesus is quoted by John as saying, um, should I be afraid of this hour? Um, should I ask that this cup be taken from me? No, it is for this purpose that I have come. And I'm thinking that's incredible shade that is being thrown at the synoptic tradition of Jesus lamenting in the garden and asking that the cup be taken away from him. This is a macho Jesus in John who doesn't have any time for this little wimpy, fear-based whining in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know. And when they do actually come to arrest him, they don't actually arrest him. He, he just goes with them. I mean, he breathes or he speaks to them and they all fall down. I mean, there are a bunch of Keystone cops in the garden. Um, and Jesus is like, okay, let's do this. I mean, everything, everything for this purpose I have come, you know. And that's a, I mean, it's a, it's a really macho, uh, confident, you can't do anything to me, Jesus. And I just love that bit when he says, what, am I going to ask that the cup be taken away from me? I mean, come on. I mean, that's got to be direct shade that he's throwing at the other gospel traditions, which he obviously knows about. Sure. I think that's really powerful. Um, what about, I, let's touch on Jesus maybe in Paul too. Um, I feel like that one of the things that I, at least as a woman in ministry, think about a lot is, um, and is my, is detesting Paul. And so I feel like that's oftentimes. Join um, us next week when we talk about <laughs> detesting Paul. I feel like I have a lot to say about Paul, but, um, Paul is um, sort of, I, I would say, like, for me, a fraught sort of writer because he, if you think about sort of the bludgeoning texts around if people, women should speak in spaces or um, where you see folks um, sort of treated as second-class citizens, that happens, in my opinion, a lot in Paul. Um, having gone to study this text a little bit more, study Paul as a writer um, and learning the nuances of how the Bible was written and how um, many liberties were taken with some of the translations. That has been maybe a bit soothing to me, but still at the end of the day, when I um, think about Paul, I don't necessarily have, I don't have the warm, warmest fuzzies about how Jesus is interpreted in Paul. And that's what I think about Jesus and Paul. So yeah. I, what are your thoughts? I'm not here to defend Paul to you. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that Paul cares very little about Jesus. I think that's right. Uh, Paul cares much more about Christ. I think that's very, very, very astute. And um, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, for Paul is the center point of all things. Paul, Paul sees the death and resurrection of Christ as nothing less than a new creation. He calls it that multiple times. In the letters, the seven letters that we generally think are actually Paul, sure. such as Galatians, Corinthians, and Romans, um, he uh, never talks about Jesus um, as a figure walking about doing things. Um, and smarter people than me might know the answer to this. In my mind, it's always a question of, is this because Paul doesn't care? Or is this because Paul, since he's writing in the mid first century, not long after Jesus' uh, death, um, he doesn't know. I mean, Paul is writing before the gospels are being written. So it's not clear to me how much oral tradition of Jesus' actual ministry right. Paul may have had access to. That's interesting. Um, but he definitely is knowledgeable about the death and resurrection. He claims, uh, although it's interesting that Acts has this rather extensive passage of Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. Um, Paul does not tell that story himself. No. He does acknowledge that he was once a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church, and he does claim that Jesus revealed himself to him as one untimely born. Um, so he does in his own writing indicate that somehow or another, he had a epiphany of Christ. Uh, and he, as Acts says, he did in fact go from Pharisee to apostle. 
Um, but for the most part, um, Paul was frustrated because to him, the world has changed. There is neither circumcised or uncircumcised. There's only a new creation. Um, there's no slave nor free, no male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is his thing. He's repeatedly frustrated by the way people behave. But on the other hand, I mean, Paul is a human being, writing as a human being with all the flaws of a human being. It's fair. And the fact that he's canonized in Scripture does, and therefore becomes for some people the Word of God does not in any manner change the historical fact that he was a man writing stuff from his own point of view. And so he's full of inconsistencies. Um, he says, we should not judge because God alone is judge. And then two chapters later, there's a man living with his brother's wife. I've already judged this man, you know. Sure. So, I mean, make up your mind, Paul. Either we don't judge people or we do. Uh, but we do the same thing. I mean, so uh, we it's not Paul's fault that the church turned him into something that he's not which is the infallible word of God, because Paul himself would never say, he, well, probably to the Galatians, he'd say that. But he would. He would not. I feel like he would. Generally speaking, he, he was not writing scripture. He was writing letters to communities. Uh, and we need to keep that in mind when we try to understand him. I think oh, that's good to tell people because I will probably always be the person. That, no, I, um, I recognize that there's a nuanced, there's a nuanced way to understand and experience Paul. And I think... The, often the trauma around that I experience around Paul and have seen inflicted on others is unfair, especially if you're going to, from your, from the, what you shared, it's unfair to um, say that he, his intention was to um, demean all of women in the universe, but I still don't love him. I'm looking up something. I have a book to recommend to our listeners. Oh, I love that. On this subject. I love that. Um, so I will. I will locate it. And I think to while you're looking to be clear too, I um I think the process of wrestling with Paul and wrestling with um his legacy and writings is something I still that doesn't mean I don't preach on this or talk about um Paul as someone that has important things to think about, but I do at the end of the day I'm like, "Listen, I'm just a little sick of it." So <laughs> uh that's Beth, me. Beth Allison Barr is a uh, professor at Baylor University, and she comes out of the Baptist tradition, and she comes from um, evangelical roots, but she's part of this movement going on right now about deconstructing all of the negative elements of that. And she wrote a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. It's good. Um, have you read it? Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I would just suggest that. I mean, if, if one struggles with Paul, what uh, Dr. Barr is trying to do is to put Paul into the perspective of a patriarchal culture right. where culture, not theology, is informing um, the mindset of patriarchy so that today, uh, her argument, if I understand it correctly, is that today patriarchy is not biblical. Patriarchy is cultural. And in fact, the Bible challenges patriarchy. But so often what the church has done is that they have co-opted cultural norms and infuse them with theological justification as opposed to as opposed to challenging cultural norms from a biblical standpoint. So the readers can decide for themselves how successful she is with that argument, but that is what she's trying to do, sure. is to claim that biblical womanhood in evangelical circles is actually a cultural construct and not a biblical sure. one. And to, I, to clarify, I think that you, what you were implying is that Paul often is associated with biblical womanhood and is someone that has been has is yeah women should not preach in church that's correct women has been i'm going to say accused of um doing those things and she, she's trying to uh, deconstruct and unpack husbands. it's all the stuff that ever uh, that makes me want to like husbands sort of just oh that's nice we get love yeah, but that's it like that's about it it's about beaten. it's about it Spare the rod. Thank, thanks paul <laughs> <laughs> throwing us. That's a whole podcast. We just, it we'll really is. It'll podcast. be just me being angry and you trying to. And talk Great. To I can't wait. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Um, what other Jesuses do we want to talk about? Do you want to talk a touch on Jesus in the Old Testament for a hot second? Well, I should say the Hebrew. Hebrew well, Jesus is not in the Hebrew Bible, as we both know, but sure. those in the New Testament world looked back upon Hebrew scripture and found there what they thought was predictions, prophecies, this sort of thing. 
Um, and there is no question in my mind that New Testament writers are trying to build a bridge because if your audience is Jewish, I mean, if your whole thing is Jewish, you need to build a bridge between what they know and where you want to go, which is what I was suggesting Luke was trying to do at the beginning of his gospel. He's trying to build a bridge between those two spaces. Um, but to just go in to Isaiah and say that what Isaiah is talking about is Jesus is, uh, well, it's bad scholarship and it's an insult to Isaiah and um, the sacred scripture of Jewish people because clearly Isaiah was not writing about Jesus. Um, one example that comes to mind is Matthew, who we talked about, uh, quotes Old Testament text more than anybody else. It's true. And he does this with relationship to Mary um, because he quotes Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. Okay, super. Problem with this is that Matthew is using the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, the word that he's taking is virgin, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. But in the Hebrew text, it says a young woman. So whoever translated the Septuagint or the Bible into Greek turned young women into virgin. And then Matthew made Mary into a virgin. And originally, Isaiah's text is talking about Hezekiah, one of the kings, uh, one of the better kings. And there weren't very many good kings, but one of the better kings. Okay, so that's what's going on in Isaiah. And it's one thing to, from the New Testament, understand that the Old Testament is background we, we need. And it's something else just to go back into the Old Testament and turn it into a New Testament text. And that's where we don't want to find Jesus. Um, but there are lots of things in the uh, Old Testament that New Testament writers borrowed to make sense. Um, Micah, O Bethlehem, not the least of the cities of Judah, from you will come, I forget the language, a savior or something. And so lo and behold, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But it's more Luke trying to find that connection for his story rather than that that's what Micah was talking about. That makes sense. I think one of the things that I'm mindful and and why that's why being anachronistic is has consequences perhaps. Thank you. The word for today, anachronistic. Um, why why that there are there are ramifications. Um, oftentimes um, when I think about anti-Semitic um, theologies, it's often because um, Christian thinkers or the community will communities will say, well, the Christian tradition is better because we have the newer Testament. And so a lot of obviously a lot of violence um, and uh, has has come as a result of that. And so I think it's important to name it's not just, uh, you know, inaccurate historically or and or problematic just because it's problematic, but because there has been a history of violence against the Jewish community for um, not having, if you as it were, um, the same connection to Jesus that the Christian community claims. And so um, even the t even the terms Old Testament and New Testament are really frowned upon in at least Old Testament and in a lot of circles and scholarship and would prefer folks used Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew text because of this uh, concern that when you claim or try and look and find Jesus in the quote unquote Old Testament, um, there are there have been there's a history of violence. And I think that's um, helpful to understand and frame. And oftentimes why Jesus is turned into sort of this um, a warrior king figure, like, well, we're, we have, the Christian community has triumphed, as it were, because the Old Testament isn't relevant. And um, we see that imagery really not in Jesus's own stories that he's talking about himself, but we do see that in Revelation, in the book of Revelation in the Bible and, and folks who've listened to um, our episode on revelation um, know that that's a particular interest of mine. And uh, the Jesus in revelation is fulfilling or, or often like I think as Jim was describing seen as a fulfillment of Daniel. 
and uh, which is a text in um, the Hebrew scriptures. And so you see Jesus um, coming back to reign in glory. You see this imagery of him carrying swords, fighting in battles. Um, and it's where I think a lot of the imagery for Jesus as warrior, as king, um, is embodied in a way that it really, really, truly isn't in the Synoptic Gospels or in um, in John or even in Paul. Like it's it's Jesus is really um, characterized in this way, and so um, and I also I think that there is some um, precedent that means that we're, we're, that justifies Jesus as a violent. Um, person stepping into his glory and stepping into his kingdom. And, um, I have find that problematic obviously. Um, but it's certainly a part of the ways that Jesus is characterized or described. And so I think it's worth at least a, a short mention and comment about as it relates to biblical texts. And what we've been saying this whole time is that the, the new Testament um, has multiple um, images, understandings, representations of Jesus. Um, it is not a modern phenomena. Um, I'll just mention this briefly. We won't get into it. Um, there is a book in the New Testament which is very confusing and probably not dealt with very much by just people that go to church, and that is the book of Hebrews, which talks about Jesus very much in, in a Hebrew scripture context as being a, the great high priest and has a lot of talk about sacrifice and sounds very much like kind of a Leviticus kind of, of way of understanding uh, Jesus. Um, and it also has some wonderful things in it, like uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, which is a very nice thing. Um, but the synoptics, as you mentioned, John, uh, the letters of John, um, Revelation, I don't know if do you consider that to be part of the Johannine group or is it a standalone deal? I think it's considered standalone. Okay. But I, but again... That but it's got an understanding. Of, and of course, certainly. Jesus for Paul, we didn't talk about this, but it's probably important. Paul's, really Paul especially, his fundamental understanding of Jesus was the eminent return. Yes. Uh, uh, the eschatological return of Jesus, his concern in Thessalonians and in his early letters is really sort of like, don't worry about anything because Jesus is coming. Right. So just get ready. And um, then Jesus doesn't come. And I personally think that this is, we, we owe the fact that Jesus did not come to the existence of the, of the gospels, because especially after the temple is destroyed in 70 um, AD, uh, Jesus isn't coming, it seems. So we need a new narrative. We need, and at that point, we begin to recapture the mission of Jesus because it appears that we're going to need this moving forward because this whole coming again and the dead being raised isn't, doesn't seem to be happening. That's a really important clarification on, on Jesus and how Jesus is interpreted today. Um, there are so many communities that are structured around and political and social concepts that I would say probably are inspired by this idea that there's a second coming of um, Jesus and that that is sort of foundational to their understanding of who Jesus is um, and is interpreted in how, how, how he functions. Um, we're at, and also that there's a connection to afterlife, like that there's a reward that comes with Jesus returning. There, there's the rapture that's connected to those, um, that theological concept that we talk about again in the episode on Revelation more in depth. So you're right. That is a, a through line that inspires and um, maybe terrifies <laughs> um, parts of the Christian community and is worth being mentioned. Um, there are also our texts, and we're not, again, recognize that we're kind of doing a pretty wide sweep of information rather than a deep dive into some of this that weren't canonized. So there are stories about Jesus that are known in scholarship that have been studied as historical documents or, or literary documents and um, aren't popularized necessarily. One of those is um, the book uh, of Je is Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas and Jesus in the Gospel of Mary. Um, but there are books and stories of Jesus that exist that are not a part of the Bible that um, Christian communities read on a regular basis. Um, 
I'm not familiar with, I think one of my favorite stories from the gospel of Thomas about Jesus, um, is that he has a lot more of his childhood. There's a lot more stories about him being young. And, um, that seems to be sort of the niche that it's filling that, you know, there are, if you read the stories that we've talked about so far, you really only get one story of Jesus being a teenager in the temple and that's about it. And so the, the gospel of Thomas provides a bit more of his childhood, um, and what, what it was like to be around Jesus. I think there's a lot of question as to whether, um, you know, this is historical because of the way that it's told. And of course it's not included in the canon because it was deemed not, um, important enough to be canonized or there was some question about its validity. Um, but still that, that there are stories of Jesus, not in the Bible. And, uh, Jesus and culture today, um, I'm thinking of the ways in which, well, put it this way, you know, Jesus exists in the public domain. The church does not and cannot control how Jesus is used, understood, portrayed, um, in culture. They may not like it. For example, um, the Greek writer Nikos Kazantzakis wrote a novel called The Last Temptation of Christ, which I think in the 1980s was turned into a movie. Because few people read, and they certainly don't read literary fiction. I don't know that the novel itself created much of a stir, but the movie did. And the movie was picketed uh, by evangelical Christians, I suspect. Um, and what the story is about, The Last Temptation is a reference to Jesus on the cross, where Satan confronts him in the form of a child and says that none of this is necessary. Um, and he's deserving of a nice life. And he can come down from the cross um, and he, he marries Mary Magdalene. Uh, they have kids. I think Mary dies at one point. I don't know all the details, um, except that this is the last temptation. And the spoiler alert, the novel ends, the movie ends, that it was, it was a temptation and he was being shown what he could do. But as it ends, he's on the cross and he chooses to stay there and he dies. Now, this is Kazantzakis, uh, doing a very imaginative exploration of the humanity of Jesus. Um, and that it would be protested indicates, in my view, the shallowness of those who are coming to protest, um, because it's not even heretical by the definitions we were using in another podcast, because it doesn't change the historical outcome. Jesus still dies on the cross. It's just... It's trying to say, but maybe that was harder. What would, what was Jesus giving up to be faithful to that? Which I think is a very powerful thing. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar, the, the uh, musical Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice protested. Um, exploring, again, sort of a human Jesus with Judas being the protagonist of that. Um, help me out. There, well, I remember a, a MASH episode from the, from the sitcom in the 1970s. That's there great. Was, there was a, a person in the hospital who thought he was Jesus. Sure. Um, and so the show is exploring that, where he obviously wasn't Jesus, but at the same time he said he was Jesus. And there's a scene at the end of that when Radar comes to him to have his teddy bear blessed. Um, so, I mean, these are just, I mean, Jesus is out there. And in another podcast, we could do a podcast on Flannery O'Connor because she's one of my favorite writers and we could go forever on that. But Jesus is out there and doesn't belong to the Catholic Church. It doesn't belong to the Protestant Church, um, cannot be contained within the Bible. He's going to be, because he's such a fascinating character, he's going to be interpreted. He's going to be used. He's going to be portrayed. Godspell comes to mind. Um, and that's just a thing. So, um, so there really, there's an infinity sign in my mind around our question of, you know, who is Jesus 
or do we really need to talk about Jesus? Because Jesus becomes almost anything or anyone um, because he's just out there and will be interpreted, who will hold the imagination uh, of people forever, I would think. So, um, and there's nothing the church or anybody else can do about that. It's just, it's just out there. I think that makes sense and is a really helpful way to frame um, sort of Jesus in the context of the U.S., perhaps. Um, I know there are lots of, you know, narratives that folks encounter, and we'll talk about a few, but recognize there are, um, as Jim said, several that that I we are selectively abandoning for this particular episode. Um, but one is certainly thinking about Jesus as someone who has blessed America, and um, that Jesus is sort of, uh, America is anointed as Jesus is anointed, and that um, obviously that creates, I think, a lot of the political rhetoric um, of uh, certain communities and has captured, I think, a lot of the American sort of psyche where you're blending J- Jesus as a um, a leader in the Christian community with nationalism, with a particular located nation and when you also combine that with sort of the political might of the United States, you have, um, I would say pretty disastrous <laughs> and, and also, um, not necessarily biblical, um, reaction or, um, consequences to those, to that particular framing of Jesus as anointed as America then is anointed. I, true. Um, there is a recent book, um, Kristen Dumay, she's a professor at Western Seminary. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Calvin College, uh, not Western. Calvin is CRC. Uh, but the point is, it's called Jesus and John Wayne. And she builds a very strong argument back to Billy Graham. Um, before that, probably, but, you know, certainly in the 50s, the Billy Graham movement uh, of this combining of nation political and evangelical theology into this merger um, and where the indication of proper manhood is John Wayne and what he represents and Jesus becomes a John Wayne kind of character and we are soldiers for God and um, men dominate the home and the, you know all those things that you were complaining about before with Paul. Listen. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's another. Uh, and again, I would say that for me personally, that's the negative. Uh, when I say Jesus is out there, you know, I think, well, the last temptation of Christ is good art, and uh, Jesus and John Wayne is is horrible. But the dynamic is the same. They're taking Jesus, who's in the public domain, and they are molding him around their purpose. Uh, and they can do that because it can be done. Um, and they are doing it. Uh, I think it's destructive, but they can do it. That's a great point. I also think, you know, the image of Jesus as returning, um, as the, the second coming, as a messianic um, figure is very prominent in the Quran. Um, I, I oftentimes, one of the, I work a lot with interfaith um dialogue and um, have really had an interest in thinking about intersections between Christianity and Islam. And one of the things that I found from reading the Quran um, and exploring sort of our, our intersections as traditions is that Jesus in all of the ways, in, in several of the ways that we've described of him returning again and returning in glory um, are, are imagined and embodied in the Quran. And so you see Jesus referred to and referenced as someone who has a lot of political might, someone who has um, a lot of relationship to um, that community, to the, the Muslim community in that way. And so um, I also recognize and have learned from working um, in in interfaith spaces that that imagery is shared. I don't necessarily think it's politicized in the same sort of toxic way, um, but maybe that's maybe that's for someone else to also weigh in on. But I do see that sort of the intersection of Christianity and Islam 
um, as it relates to Jesus, is that Jesus is a, a figure in the Muslim community that is held in high regard. That's sort of how that uh, manifests. He's seen as someone that is has a lot of um, relationship to justice and um, to right judgment, to um, political might, and to um, being a part of the community in that way. And so for me, as someone who's often shying away from those images, having to engage with some of the ways that Jesus is depicted in the Quran and seeing um, how that manifests and that there's overlap has also given me a different perspective um, in seeing that like that there are other ways for that. It doesn't have to just be that if Jesus is depicted as someone who um, has political power, that he then has to wield it poorly um, or that somehow the community that's following gets to be the community in domination and is going out and causing a lot of, um, violence or harm from that. Um, he's revered and seen as someone with wisdom and that that there is a lot of trust and um, affection for Jesus. And so that's been humbling for me and helpful um, and, and helpful. Another way, um, I think maybe it will be helpful for us to talk about our own interpretations of Jesus and to see sort of where Jesus lands for us in our own, our own lives. And I know that you've shared um, a little bit about Jesus as functioning as a, a fictional character and how and what that means. But I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit for folks who are listening. I don't know if I can unpack it quickly. Um, what, I, what I mean by that is the only thing we have in our possession that speaks of Jesus is a literary text. We don't have a text written by Jesus. We don't have a nonfiction philosophy book that Jesus leaves for us, um, similar in manner to how what we know of Socrates we get through Plato, who wrote as if Socrates were participating in the dialogues that were taking place, but it's still Plato talking about Socrates. Um, but we even have more historical uh, help with Socrates 400 years before Jesus was born than we have of Jesus. So what we have of Jesus is embedded in a text. And therefore, what we take out of that is subject to all of the dynamics and limitations of any text that we read and construct meaning from. Um, but as a, since I'm a, a minister in the Presbyterian tradition, um, I consider the texts, the Gospels, to be sacred texts. And the primary, if not exclusive, way that I understand Jesus. And we've already talked about the ways in which they, I won't say they contradict each other, but they paint different pictures. So we've already got variety. Um, but to me, because of the status that those documents have taken in the church, to me, a legitimate interpretation of Jesus has got to be rooted in the evidence of those texts. Um, which doesn't mean there's only one interpretation. But my argument with Christian nationalism or Jesus and John Wayne is that I just don't think the premise of their theological position is not born out of the literary texts that talk about Jesus. They might find biblical basis, but I don't think Jesus with an with an AR-47 can be justified from anything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So that's where the cutoff for me is, if we're talking about, you know, is, is Jesus Christ superstar legitimate? My answer would be to the degree in which it's intersecting with the texts uh, where we fundamentally see Jesus. So the Jesus for me, the Jesus that I follow, the Jesus that matters to me spiritually, religiously, is the Jesus that I uncover in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then secondarily in other documents in the New Testament. Um, to the degree that those Gospels illustrate something about Jesus, then I think that's valid. Why do I think I should help the poor? Because I think it's pretty clear in those texts that that was a priority for Jesus. And then, of course, in our culture, we have so many difficulties around issues that are not explicitly mentioned. 
like uh, homosexuality or gender or sexual orientation generally, uh, abortion rights, uh, human rights, things like that. Jesus never talked about those things directly. So at that point, I have to say, okay, so what can we infer from who Jesus seems to be in these texts? What, what did he value? And what we see is love, um, forgiveness, um, healing, um, very much against a, a uh, righteousness for righteousness sake. Uh, very much a human welfare has to come at the top of the, this isn't going to solve like every problem in the world, but like the issue of gender and sexual orientation, it's not hard for me to come up with an answer to that because it seems clear to me how accepting Jesus would be and probably was. I mean, Luke doesn't tell us about his encounter with a homosexual, but I'm, homosexuals existed in the time of Jesus, and they certainly didn't go out of their way to condemn them in the gospel. But it's pretty clear to me what Jesus's direction would be in these issues. Um, so that's not hard. Um, can I prove it? Can I, you know, no. But I don't think, so I guess what I'm doing is I'm, I'm choosing Jesus as he is revealed to us in the gospels as having higher importance than a biblical text, a biblical verse, um, or something like that. You know, the, the, the anti-gay rhetoric is always built around Leviticus. It's built around Romans. Um, yes, they're there. I wrote an article once where the title of which was, when it comes to the Bible, we're all pro-choice. And the point of that article was that you can find your desires in the Bible. If you don't like homosexuals, you can substantiate that with some biblical texts. But what you need to own up to is that you're choosing to dislike homosexuals. And what I protest are people who say, hey, I'd like to love gays too, but it's in the Bible and I got to do what the Bible tells me. That's, I won't say it because it's not nice on podcasts, but uh, okay. So you want to take Paul's Romans thing, you want to take Leviticus 18, fine, just own it. Say that I choose to hate homosexuals or, or, or um, oppress homosexuals. Uh, I choose to read the Bible in a way that allows me to do that. Okay, just own that. It's out there. I choose something different. I choose liberation. I choose what I think is, is Jesus' manifold love. Um, but we're making choices. We're making choices because we have to, because it's not some sort of comprehensive guide to life. It is a story of a human being who is believed to have been also divine, who was proclaiming the kingdom of God and what that represented. And that's what we have to work on and stay in and figure out. And so I would say that even though Jesus is out there and you can do with Jesus what you want, I would argue, yeah, but you can't do anything you want and claim it's biblical. Because it's probably not. It's probably just you and your Jesus doing what you want to do. Um, so Jesus to me is the Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and they're not the same Jesus, but there are enough interwoven themes that I can stumble my way through. But when in doubt, love. When in doubt, accept. When in doubt, liberate. When in doubt, help the marginalized. When in doubt, make someone's life better. You know, and if I go to the pearly gates and I'm told that wasn't the thing to do, then I'll say, okay, you win. But that, I think, is the best way forward. That's beautiful. I think for me, I'll, I'm going to echo, obviously, a lot of what you were saying, but um, I think that um, I, too, am really uh, convicted by the historical Jesus, the embodied journey of Jesus, as we know it in the um, Synoptic Gospels and the Gospels. And I, um, I too, when I think of, um, not just based on my own heart feelings, but when I read about how Jesus lived and acted and treated other people, it was clearly from a place of um, kindness and clearly from a place also of um, 
challenge when it needed to be. So I, um, you know, I don't think Jesus was just a nice guy walking around trying to appease everyone's whims. I think that he had a strong sense of power and who was in power and who was not in power and acted um, in accordance with that understanding of the social structure. So um, to those who were poor and um, in need, um, he demonstrated abundant compassion, and that was just how he existed. Um, and when uh, he w- was met with um, political and religious leaders who um, were not able to um, incorporate or think about the world in which poor people or um, widows or ch- orphans lived in, he was outraged and demonstrated um challenges to their authority questioned from where they came so I don't think Jesus was a um, sort of a milk toast nice guy that walked around and just tried to draw up compromises constantly I think he had a strong sense of um, whom for whom he was advocating and for whom and uh, to whom he was advocating um, uh, for whom he was advocating, he had a strong sense of for whom he was advocating, and he had a strong sense of whom he was ch- to whom he was challenging, and um, that for me ha- frames how I try to exist in the world, and frames how I think about ministry, and think frames how I try to act in accordance. Um, that was certainly not easy, and it is not easy. It does not. Um, um, it is not an easy calling. But I do think when I, um, when you look, for me, when I look at the journey of Jesus, that is clear, that is a clear through line I can see in um, how he lived and existed in the world. Um, I would also say that with that, um, he was a very um, uh, good thinker. He was a very um, versed thinker, always asking questions and telling stories in a way that created um, both critique but also opened up people's ways of existing in the world and um, opened their minds to new ways and to nuance and I try to do that as well I think that was a big part of his ministry was thinking and encouraging other people to think as well Um, and um, that he had a strong sense of action and doing that it wasn't just that he was sitting behind an armchair um, pontificating on ideas that he was um, trying to be with and among people. And that also meant sometimes he got tired or sometimes he was just sort of exhausted by what he felt called to do um, because it is a, that is a significant task. But um, I, I admire and respect those parts of his journey. And I feel like, again, as you, to reiterate what you said, if I were to look at his life as it is told in the stories of Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke. And also then to look at, um, for what he advocated that to me seems very clear. And, um, I hope to, I hope for that to be what people see when they see me and think about who I am as a person. The through line is what I think that's everything you talked about. That's the through line. Um, you know, and I can't help but go back to, you know, my primary interests and my education. But when in an English class, if you're looking at any text um, and you're asking the students to say something interpretive about it and they say something, you might be inclined as the teacher to say, where do you see that in the text? And I think that's the question that I would ask of many people in our culture who banter Jesus about. I would say, where do you see that in the text? Um, If your interpretation of Jesus is that he's this masculine lord of the household, macho man, um, where do you see that in the text? Uh, Not where do you see it in your imagination or where do you see it in the Bible or or anything like that, but, you know, let's look at the text. You know, I I often draw on Moby Dick because um, of the whale and... You know, the whale over, since Melville wrote the book, the whale has come to mean a thousand things. But each time, it's derived from the text. The whale doesn't mean just one thing. But the whale doesn't mean just anything. The whale means what the whale means in the context of the text. 
and how we understand that is influenced by who we are and our background and all that stuff that we talked about. And so I would just say, you know, if someone comes up with this viewpoint of Jesus, which is discriminatory and hurtful and, and whatever else, I just say, show me where in the text do you derive that interpretation of Jesus? Because to me, even though Jesus is in the public domain, he's rooted in the Gospels. And what I would think would be, a because there are many interpretations, but not every interpretation is a legitimate interpretation. Mm. And a legitimate interpretation has to be grounded in the text. And that's English 101 for just understanding. And I guess that goes back to my idea of Jesus as a fictional character. Jesus exists in text. That's all he, that's all he is to us. I mean, practically, functionally. We don't have his writings. We don't have his statue. We don't have the historical Jesus that we can point to as different from the interpretations of Jesus that we have. All we have is the text. So we function with that text the way we function with any text. Interpretations will vary, but they have to be derived from what is present in the text and not from the outside. That makes a lot of sense. That's just the English teacher in me. <laughs> I... Um... I appreciate our conversation today. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. How are you feeling? I'm feeling like our listeners are done. That's how I'm feeling. I think that I think they're going to uh, have a, opportunities if to even. Still with us. That's right. If you made it to the end, well done. Yes. They can stop it and listen to it at different that's points. That's true. It, we're good. You know, we're had, gold. They got to the grocery store. They turned it that's off. Right. They went in. Yeah. I, I we're imagining our, our imaginary listeners. So thank you, uh, folks, for tuning in. Um, it's important to have conversations like this, and your support means a lot because it uh, it allows it allows for these kinds of things to happen. So um, thanks so much. And we will see you next time. Don't forget to rate and review us. Well, positive. Thank you. Five stars, preferably. And if not, please let us know. Or don't say anything at all. <laughs> this is, I've never thought of it that way before. And we'll talk to you again soon. 